Tēnā koutou, no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, four months from the election, national leader Christopher Luxon is with us live. Then the United States scrambles to strengthen its role in the region. Thank God for our partnership with New Zealand. New Zealand, uh, just like the United States of America, is part of the Pacific. And one of New Zealand's best-known climate scientists says 1.5 degrees ain't happening. I feel more stressed all the time. There's, there's less time left to take action, to stop climate change at a, at a manageable level. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But first this morning, we can reveal a national government will overturn the effective ban on gene editing and genetic modification in New Zealand. Strict regulations around the use of the technology have been in place since 1996 and then laws were amended in 2003. But the party says it will overhaul those rules. It will introduce a new regulator and streamline approvals for use of the technology. National Party leader Christopher Luxon is with us for the first time this year. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Jack. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Why are you lifting the ban? Well, look, New Zealand faces some really serious challenges, you know, whether it's around climate change or whether it's about improving the health of New Zealanders. And what we need is all the tools and technologies we possibly can to actually solve those problems and challenges that we have. And the reality is our laws have been really in a time warp from 1996 to 2003. There's been huge advances, very exciting advances in the technology. Uh, and actually what we need to do is end the effective ban uh, on genetic technologies, as we've been talking about, but also make sure that we've got good safeguards in place with a very smart, dedicated uh, regulator, a biotech regulator. So, you know, we've got a huge uh, possibility with this technology. Uh, when I think about what it can do with respect to helping us deliver on our climate change goals, when you think about what it can do with respect to improving the health of New Zealanders, actually growing our economy. Uh, and the reality is we are well behind all the other OECD countries that have made tremendous advances in this space. Australia, the UK, the US, Japan, Argentina, the EU even, uh, are much more advanced from where New Zealand is. So, you know, the good news is that all of our scientific community is very pro it uh, and is saying, look, everything has moved on. Uh, and it's no different from you having your phone today in 2023. It's very different from the phone you probably had in, in 1996. So there's lots of exciting innovation that's well, I suppose, happened. I suppose the risks are different. What do you perceive are the biggest risks? Well, look, I, I think uh, I, I actually see huge upside for New but Zealand. what's the risk, though? Well, the risks we can mitigate and we can safeguard what really the clearly. Risks? Well, the, what we're going to make sure is we've got a biotech regulator yeah. that is there to safeguard any implications mm. for humans, make sure animal welfare is maintained, and make sure that our environment's protected. And that's a model that we're following off the Australian model, where they have a gene technology mm. regulator. Uh, and we want to make sure that we've got, we're not being reckless, we're being you know, really smart, we're being mm. quite conservative, have a very dedicated regulator. Some, some OECD countries have very limited regulation around GE, mm. uh, but actually we want to make sure we're on the conservative end of that spectrum. So, so back to my question, what are the biggest risks? Well, I don't see any risks. I think the risks can be managed incredibly well. You the, see no risks? The, the risks can be managed incredibly well through a regulator. Uh, what would happen so there is are each, there are risks though, right? There are risks, and each application. So, so, so what goes, do you think are the biggest risks? Well, each application comes to a regulator for consideration. Mm. It goes out for still, a thirty days. Answering my question though, what, well, no, what are the well, biggest risks? Well, it depends on the technologies, right? right? And that's why you want a panel. So of in a New Zealand context, and, and uh, I know there will be particular interest around um, the use of genetic modification or genetic um, editing technologies around the use of things that might help our 
um, emissions profile when it comes to agriculture, for example. Absolutely. So, yeah, so, so what would be the biggest risks in that context, do you well, think? Well, I, I don't see any risks on that. I see huge upside for New Zealand. I see that the biggest risk is mm. us actually not adopting our technologies and getting them up to speed and dragging New Zealand into the 21st century. That's any, the much bigger risk. Are, are, there, are there any occasions in which the introduction of GMOs has had unintended consequences? No. I mean, there's a lot of you know people will be scaremongering and saying, is there crop contamination? Mm. No. There's actually been 100 times the land size of New Zealand planted in genetic crops. Uh, there's been no contamination. Uh, there's organic uh, producers, say, in California. They've mm. never lost their licences. That doesn't happen. In, in Oregon, I, I see a genetically modified grass seed um, escaped its containment area and spread over quite a quite a large area, effectively threatening a billion dollar industry. Yeah, but what I'd say to you really clearly is that's a very good example to me, which is that here we have a piece of research mm. in New Zealand, ag research developed a ryegrass. It actually has a 23% lower emissions profile mm. and is much more drought resistant. That technology is developed here in New Zealand, but can't be trialled outside of the lab, and as a result is taken to the US mm. for trials. That's a, that's a tool or a technology we desperately need to do in order to meet our climate goals that yeah. we've got and to deal with agricultural emissions, which is a real challenge for New Zealand. But, but I asked forward. you before if there are any occasions when the introduction of GMOs has had unintended consequences, and you acknowledge there are. Well, no, what I'd say to you is... Well, I just are, gave you an example. Well, there are risks, but what I'm saying is those risks are going to be incredibly mm. well-managed uh, conservatively with a good regulator. But the bigger risk mm. is that we are getting well left behind. Right, We're right, not solving the problems. Again, though, you're just not acknowledging my question. You're not answering the question I'm asking, which is, do you acknowledge there have been unintended consequences in the past with the introduction of GMOs? Uh, I, I, I personally, Jack, I do not feel that the risks are Do you acknowledge the there have been unintended consequences? There may have been, but I cannot think of any examples of crop contamination. I cannot think of any examples. Except for the one I just gave you. The GM DNA comes through in meat, eggs or milk. Mm. I can tell you that doesn't happen. Uh, we make sure we've got safeguards on animal welfare and obviously on human embryonics and, uh, as well. So. So, so one of the concerns with the introduction of GMOs overseas is that it's led to a massive uptick in the use of herbicides. Will that happen in New Zealand? Well, actually, I think there's a huge opportunity for us to enhance our clean and green imagery with mm. modern technology like we've seen. You know, when you think about pest resistant grasses, for example, that mean that you're not using pesticides that aren't getting into your waterways, that's mm. a good thing. Uh, when I think about our ability to be able to deliver on our emissions profile and to be able to march agricultural emissions down, that's incredibly exciting. Mm. Um, you know, we have a number of technologies, you know, and, and let me give you two just in the agricultural yep. space. Ag, ag research, as I spoke to you before about ryegrass, huge opportunity for New Zealand. Uh, if I think about Bovea, which is a, a methane inhibitor that's put into feed for cattle uh, that actually reduces cattle emissions by about 30%. Mm. That's approved already in 30 countries around the world. So the question is, you know, there are two examples where we say we have a challenge, a unique mm. challenge in New Zealand, half of our, you know, our emissions profile comes from agriculture. These are the kinds of technologies we need to march our emissions profile My down. point is that sometimes there are unintended consequences, and, and the best of intentions are well and good, but sometimes you end up in a place you didn't intend. And so, for example, overseas, um, companies have, and, 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 and labs and scientists have, have developed um, herbicide-resistant grasses, or herbicide-resistant plants, so that they can effectively grow a crop pour Roundup over the top, knowing that the weeds will die, 
and that their crop will be okay. But if we were to do the same in New Zealand, of course, that means that we see a significant uptick in the, in, in the use of herbicides. Yeah, so Jack, that's the whole point. As I'm not the scientist, I'm the mm. politician. My job is to create a framework to make sure that I can improve New Zealand's ability to deliver on its climate change commitments, that I can actually make sure mm. I improve the health of New Zealanders, and that we can grow our economy. You know, we have, you know, if I think about, say, another example, mm. you know, Lanzatech, you know, technology developed in New Zealand's research institute labs about microbes that turn pollution into biofuels. Mm. You know, that couldn't be tested outside a lab, so it was taken to America. That business was created in the US, and now it's $1.3 billion that we miss out on as well. So, what so I'm really excited by the fact that actually the world has moved on since 2003. Mm. The technology has moved what on. What premium does being GMO-free give our exports? Um, well, I, you can continue to be organic if you believe. My experience. What premium the, does it give? Our well, my experience so. from New Zealand, uh, from from marketing products like that around mm. the world, is it's less than five percent. You know, it's less than five percent. It that, ultimately that's gets still, competed that's away. Still, that's still significant. Yes, but equally, so can the improved productivity, so can our improved environmental mm. record uh, be achieved through these technologies. So the bottom line is, New Zealand's well behind the you know, behind the other countries. We need to drag ourselves into the 21st century. Right. This can be done safely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you say, you say that, um, that people can still, or, or exporters can still choose to be organic or still choose not Correct. to use GMO or GE um, technology. But because of the way ecosystems work, there will be some in the scientific community who say that actually once New Zealand crosses this threshold, there's no going back. Once you allow any form of GMO or GE technology in, in New Zealand, um, in the New Zealand ecosystem, effectively everything loses that status. So what will that Well, what I'd say to you really clearly is I, I would encourage you to listen to the scientific community mm. in New Zealand because whether it's the current or the former chief science advisor to the Prime Minister, both of them have said, look, we are so far behind here. We are not using this technology. There's a real opportunity. We need to have a discussion about it. We need to deal with it. Mm. When you look at Science New Zealand, all the research institute heads, they understand that we are well behind mm. here. So our scientific community is, is acknowledging that technology has moved on tremendously since 2003, understandably. And then what I'm saying to you is we're not going to be reckless. We're going to have a biotech regulator modelled on the Australian one that public will be able to make incredibly well. Yep. Public will be able to make submissions for 30 days un under each case. Each mm. case has to go through quite a rigorous process uh, and we'll make sure that we keep the safeguards in place for humans, animals and, and, and the environment. Okay, so let's talk about timeframes very quickly. If this law passes and by the time the new regime is in place and trials have been completed, we will be, realistically, past 2030. Now you say that here Waka Ekenoa is dead, at least at the moment and that the government should return to the industry plan, allowing the industry to essentially set prices for emissions on farms. So to be clear, does National think the agriculture industry should be responsible for setting the price of emissions? Well, let me tell you a little bit about that, and I have more to say about that in the coming just, week. Just to answer that but, question. No, but I want to be really clear, because... Be, be clear and please answer yep, that question. The National Party is very committed to net carbon zero 2050. Yes. We're the government that put New Zealand into, through the Paris Agreement in 2050. And you're right? still committed to the Zero Deep, Carbon Act? Deeply, deeply committed to the you know, Carbon Zero Act. You won't back to out policy. of that act? No, no, no. We are deeply, okay, deeply so committed to those goals. Okay, so back to that goals. question. Does the National... Means, no, 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 hang on a second. Does, does National think 
the agriculture industry should be responsible for setting the price of emissions. What we believe is we should work with the agriculture industry to do exactly that. So, so you think that the agriculture industry should be the ones doing it? We think that they can work with, gov with government and agriculture That's together. That's waffle-waffle talk. No, no, should, but, should, no, but should, partnership's should, important. OK, no, uh, everyone agrees partnership's important. Well, it isn't, but ultimately, no, they don't. this government hasn't done so, that. So, if, so, so are you saying that if, if government sets price, sets the price, the agriculture industry doesn't agree, that's it, that it won't happen? Uh, I will talk more about our specifics of the policy. That's well, a very simple some, question. No, but I can give you some principles to say, first and foremost, mm. uh, we have been very supportive of the industry developing a pricing regime for mm. agricultural emissions. There is no doubt about it, the status quo is not acceptable. Our customers will be demanding it in the future, and so change is needed. Fully agree with that. The government blew it up. They actually killed it off big time. Well, there are two differences between the government's Hewaka Ekenoa position and the industries, right? One is around sequestration and whether or not the effectively what is described as temporary planting should be included, and the other is around who should set the price. The government says the government should set the price. The industry says the industry should set the price. I want to know your position. Industry and the government, government? the government killed any consensus that was existing in the industry by actually saying they're going to move production out of the most carbon efficient producers in the world to other countries to make New Zealand poorer and to destroy you, livelihoods. Out of interest, We're not interested from in a that. principal perspective, would you let alcohol companies set the alcohol excise tax? <laughs> no, but what we're saying here is we're going to partner with the sector mm. to work it out together. Uh, that is not what this government has been doing. So our principles are very simple. Mm. Change has to happen because the status quo is not acceptable. We will partner with the government, with the sector to do it. We will make sure that we actually have all the tools and technologies, mm. which is where biotech changes come that. into. Okay. And we need to make sure there is no leakage. We're not interested in destroying livelihoods here in New Zealand and moving production offshore. Right. New Zealand farmers feed 40 million people around the world. Mm. Moving that production, which has what? to be met by another country I know or the another risk farm, that, the, the risk doesn't that actually is, is very contested. But anyway, we'll, we'll move on. You released the National Party's infrastructure policy this week. You gave a 25-minute speech. Yeah. I was in the room. How many times did you mention climate change? Well, it's very much part of climate change. How, much, how many times did you mention it in that 25 minutes? Uh, my speech was about infrastructure and about getting to the enabling under uh, the drivers yes. of what's and so stopping how infrastructure how many times getting built in this climate change. In Probably the not speech. that many, I would have thought, Jake. It was zero. Was it? Mm. <laughs> there you go. So how many policies... But it was an infrastructure how, speech about the causes well, yes. of what's, what's stopping New Zealand from growing infrastructure, right? And, 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 and how to respond to the, to the mm. threats presented by climate change and how to reduce our collective emissions profile. How many policies does the National Party have that will explicitly reduce emissions during your first term in government? Well, a good example is... How many what, policies well, do you have? We've already talked about our Electrify NZ policy. Mm. What we're saying simply is if you want to make the transition from fossil fuels to renewables, we desperately want to do that. Mm. We want to do that as fast as we possibly can. The biggest problem that we have is actually we couldn't make that transition today because we don't have, an, we don't have enough renewable electricity. Mm. We're saying we want to double the supply of renewable electricity in New Zealand. We're the third best country in the world that has heaps of access to wind, so, so sun, solar and geothermal. How much bring down emissions in your first term? Um, what we've got to do is we've got to be able to make that readily available. That's OK. How, so how sectors much, just, and industries can, can make question? that transition. So, so how, much, how much will that bring down emissions during your first term in government? We, we will have that all mapped out in our emissions budgets as we go into government. But what I'm saying to you now is the first most logical mm. step you can do, rather than have bumper stickers and headlines, is actually to solve the problem. And the problem defined is that we need to move our emissions profile yeah. big time. Okay, the so, first so, thing so 
you can do is flood the market with with you know cheap renewable, renewable electricity. electricity. Yeah. So and the so big thing you can do is actually consent and speed up consenting, and that's why we said it will take one year to consent renewable electricity. Yeah. Projects. I mean, I, I look at the New Zealand Wind Energy Association. It says many consented projects are currently on hold as the developer waits for market conditions and demand for renewable electricity to increase to make the wind farms commercially available. So with that in mind, if you need to induce demand for renewable um, for renewable sources of energy, let's look at your policies. You will allow cities to sprawl, leading to higher emissions, which is something um, that, uh, you, uh, that Chris Bishop uh, acknowledged to us on the last Q&A. You will scrap incentives for electric vehicles. You will scrap the light rail project, still? Yeah, I think light rail okay. at $30 billion so, is a huge so waste of time. So you'll scrap the biggest rapid transit project in New Zealand history. And you want to let our biggest emitting sector potentially set its own emissions pricing or hand-in-hand hand with government, and you will restart oil and gas exploration. How can anyone take the National Party serious on climate no, no, change? No, no, the means by which we deliver our goals, the goals will be very different. We are deeply committed to the outcomes and the goals, make no mistake about that. But it doesn't mean that the government's approach is the only way to do that. We've been in a perverse situation, if you take each of those issues, mm. on oil and gas, for example, where we now have been importing three times the amount of mm. Indonesian coal in order to fire up Huntley, when actually we could be using gas as a transitory so, you know, transition just, energy Just on, on that point, because I, I know, there, I know right? that you keep on making that comment about coal. In the last three months of 2022... Last three months, it's come back. Yep, it's been yeah. good. So less coal was brought into New Zealand than in any other quarter in the last 32 years. Yeah, but not years. the experience over the last few years since the decision to ban oil and gas. I'm saying we need gas. It's better than coal. Mm. It's not as good as renewables. We'll need it for but a we've got to hit to totally renewable by Correct. 2030, right? So you're going to reintroduce gas for a couple of years, and you're, you're thinking that these Secondly, multinationals that are going to come in... And, and, and explore for, for oil and gas off the Taranaki coast are going to say, oh, yeah, we're only here for a couple of years. Come and then on. what we're going to say is over the next 25 years, we're going to double the amount of renewable electricity. There is already in the sector $30 billion worth of investment that they want to make actually about doing that. Right. Instead of the government wanting to spend $16 billion doing Lake Onslow, we can actually empower those organisations, those businesses, that sector to do that investment. It's, it's ridiculous. You do a wind farm that actually takes 100,000 know, homes yes, I've, I've pointed out the consent issues around the wind farm. eight farms. years to consent it. Yes, well, it's ridiculous. It, I can read Absolutely you that hopeless. quote again in the air break. Um, uh, we'll be back with Christopher Luxon in just a moment. Stay with Q&A. We're back in a sec. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. National Party leader Christopher Luxon, let's talk tax. It has made up a big part of the election campaign so far. Your party has repeatedly insinuated that Labor is planning a capital gains tax. How many houses do you own? Uh, I've been up front, seven houses. There are 120 MPs in Parliament. Who owns the most houses? I have no idea. Is there any MP you can name who owns more houses than you? I don't know, Jack. <laughs> is there any MP you can name that owns more houses than you? I, I don't know. I, I, just don't, I don't have a clue who owns what. When did you buy your investment properties? Four of those seven are investment properties, right? Yes, four out of the seven are investment properties, three are residential, um, and I must have bought them years ago. Yep. How many years ago? Oh, back since, I don't know, over eight, over different periods of time. So give us some rough years. Oh, 2000 and... I, I can't remember, Jack, somewhere between when I arrived back home in New Zealand in 2012 to, to 2019, I presume. Tw 20, OK, 2012. So roughly how much would your four investment properties have increased in value since you purchased have them? have no idea. Haven't Roughly how much? I don't know. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Okay, so if we take the median house value in Auckland, so from 2012, if you bought a house in 2012, it will have uh, increased in value $500,000. So let's take a couple from 2015 as well, $250,000. You said up to 2019, you said? Possibly, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So theoretically, we're looking at capital gains of 
probably one and a half million dollars if you sold those houses today. I don't know, Jack. I honestly don't look at it. I don't don't follow it. I don't. I have those houses. That yeah. Are my so, so if we look at if we look I've at the median value, I've been very transparent value. about it up front. Yeah. Uh, right from day one. Well, good. Uh, and I've been very open about it. So, so, so if you if you if you look at the, the the capital value of those properties, if you were to sell them today, you would you would make a profit of about one point five million dollars. So under Nationals policy, how much tax would you pay on that $1.5 million? Well, we don't believe that we need a capital gains tax, an inheritance tax or a wealth mm. tax. So how what much, New how Zealand much tax, has is how, a spending problem, not so, a tax problem. So how much tax would you pay? Just to be totally clear, on $1.5 million, how well, much tax would you Well, we don't you, have a capital gains tax here in, in, in New Zealand, Jack, so I wouldn't pay anything uh, on a realised gain. So, so what I'm saying to you is, you know, this, but, but I know I, I get where you're trying to get to, but the point is really clear. Mm. In New Zealand, we have a spending problem in New Zealand at the moment. So, no, but let's just, and I'm, this is a government the, trying to raise who, lots of new creative taxes. No, no, taxes you, well, you're the one who keeps on bringing order. up the capital gains tax, so, so I want to focus on yep. it. So, so $1.5 million in capital gains, $0 in tax. How do I know... You're talking you, about unrealised gains at the moment, yeah, right? If, but if you were to sell them, right? If you were to sell them today, you'd make... Let's say, Who back knows? of the envelope, $1.5 million. You'd pay $0 in tax. So how do I know that you are not just opposing a capital gains tax because that'll mean you pay more tax? <laughs> no, that's not fair. Uh, well, what we're talking well, how about I, How do is, I know that? Look, I mean, I'm, an, I'm involved in conversations on broad housing policy. Yeah, so how, and how, the housing how, policies are linked between owning homes, mm. renting, uh, state houses and, and emergency housing and, and investing. all interrelated issues, right? Back, back to that question, though. How do I know that you're not just doing it for your own gain? Uh, no, because the treasure, because the government's own advisers said, don't remove interest dedu tax deductibility, don't it's extend the bright line, about, don't I'm add costs to I'm rents, asking about renters. capital gains. So what did they say about capital gains tax? Um, I, I'm not, the capital gains tax, I'm telling you, we're not having no, a capital no, gains tax. No, no, I know. Yeah, no, I'm very clear tax. on that. So, so, because so, what we've got is a spending problem in no, this country, no, no, not no, a tax problem. You're trying to go somewhere not else a, not, a, not a debt problem. We've got a debt problem and a Please, tax problem. You want to be the Prime Minister, you can answer these straight questions. I'm giving you a straight answer. How do I know that you don't oppose a capital gains tax because you, you, under a capital gains tax, would have to pay more tax? Uh, I can tell you because I've been very transparent up front. I'm involved in broad housing policy conversations. Mm. I can tell you those things don't enter my mind about what happens for me personally. But we just have to take your word on it, right? But if there's an issue, I would talk to the Cabinet Office, I'll declare all of that. If they tell me to do something different, I'd do something different. Why, why isn't this a conflict of interest? Well, it, it's not because it's a broad conversation about housing policy. There are many MPs but that have multiple houses uh, there in are. Parliament. Yeah, right? and, but, but you, it's not just me. But you own the most investment properties. You own four investment properties, which by my count is the most investment properties of any MP in Parliament. You want to be Prime Minister, and one of your explicit promises is that you oppose a capital gains tax, a capital gains tax that would tax people like you. Yeah, and what I can say to you really clearly is I'm involved in broad housing policy conversation. Mm. If there was something specific, I could imagine that I'd want to recuse myself if a property had a red zone designation or something so like that. So would you recuse yourself from any conversations the, around capital gains I will take all my interests to the Cabinet Office mm. and whatever the Cabinet Office says I need to do, I don't take 12 times to respond to that mitigation. Mm. If there is a real or a perceived conflict, um, I'd, I'd, I'd respond to their, their wishes. So you, know, ha, ha, I, I, you can, you know, I'm interested in solving problems in yeah, New Zealand. And, and I'm, I'm interested in your position on capital gains tax because you've been very strong about it. So, six so years. How, many, how many people are employed by your investment properties? Sorry? How many people are employed by your investment properties? Um, what, uh, sorry, they are investment properties. What do you mean in terms of employment? Well, that's, that's the point, right? You're because trying to make a point about the, the, No, the point I'm trying to make is actually about productivity. Because you said in your maiden speech that productivity was the number one thing holding back our standard of living. You've sold yourself as a top business leader and economic <laughs> expert, and with all your economic nous, you followed the incentives 
and you chose to put your money for investments into, into houses. And now you are going to reverse all of those changes to property investment incentives. You will loosen the laws on residential landlords, you'll pull back the bright line test, you'll reinstate interest deductibility. My question is, what will stop other New Zealanders from just doing what you did, following the incentives and pouring their money into unproductive assets like houses? Let's just talk with the rental market, right? Because it's been really unfair what Jacinda Ardern, Grant Robertson and Chris Hipkins have said. They have said that people who own rental homes are tax and property speculators. That is not the case. 72% of all you know, landlords mm. are actually mum and dad investors who might have one or two mm. rental properties that are augmenting for their retirement and for their superannuation, right? They are not evil property speculators. The government also received advice to say, please don't actually re uh, remove interest uh, tax deduct interest deductibility. It's a legitimate business expense all around mm. the world. And please don't extend the Brightline test. Why? They're adding costs to landlords that lead to higher rents. Rents are up $160 so, a week under this government. I think about $50 of it is, a con is, a is, a is linked to those two policies. Okay, so that doesn't answer so those my policies question, are it, bad policies, okay, right? So those That's why they need to be that removed. That doesn't answer my question, though. What is to stop other people from just doing what Christopher Lux and the economic expert did and pouring their money into unproductive I have a range houses. of investments in what I do with my interests. Mm. I, I, I make no apology for it. And I know you and I have had this conversation but before. You're not giving me no, but, no, any, no, but, any examples no, of why I people wouldn't just do, because, do what you know, you're doing. I, I'm a Kiwi kid who came from a pretty you know, normal background. I, I, I'm, I I'm worked hard. I'm not attacking you for your well, success. I'm no, not attacking you, you for your wealth. No, no, no. I'm simply asking why other New Zealanders can't come into Parliament and actually make a contribution. No, what I'm saying is why shouldn't other New Zealanders who want to emulate your success follow the same incentives you did and pour money into unproductive assets when you have said that productivity is the biggest problem facing this Individuals country. make their own decisions around a mix of investments around their own personal mm. interests and their personal assets. That's what I've done. Uh, what I've been really clear with everyone from day one is I've been incredibly transparent mm. about it all. If at any point in time the Cabinet Office came to me okay, and said, no, Chris, uh, there's a conflict of interest, the conflict of you interest, need to take so. advice, and I would take that advice and do whatever they asked me to do. But the point is, this is broad housing policy. We are not building houses. The government has failed on you, every you, level. You haven't given me any answers on productivity, which is what I've asked you about. But I want to ask you about something else. Well, I'm giving else. you ideas on productivity. I want to ask you about something else. How do we improve... As Prime Minister... No, let's talk... Pro if no, you want no, to talk no, productivity, I'm going to talk about As Prime Minister, this is something that's come up time and time again. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be emphatic here. As Prime Minister, if access to abortion is restricted in any way under your leadership, do you pledge to resign? Yes. Apart from reintroducing the $5 prescription fees, if New Zealanders' access to contraceptives is restricted during your time as Prime Minister, do you pledge to resign? Yes. There's no change to abortion laws, access to funding, uh, access to health care. Those laws have been settled. They're not changing under my government. And frankly, they're not what New Zealanders are interested in right now. Have you spoken to Winston Peters this year? Uh, I did catch up with Winston at a couple of events. Yeah. When? Uh, earlier in the year, I think. Did you talk at all about the possibility of working together? No, just, just had a chit-chat about what a summer had been like and how much fishing he'd done and all those sorts of things. Do you think you could work with him in government? Uh, again, I'm not getting into any coalition calculations. Could David Seymour work with him in government? Again, I'm not getting into any of that. I am focused on making sure that we are, we've got a lot of work to do mm. in the next four months. My v vision is that we are going to be a government that's going to fix this economy to reduce the cost mm. of living. I know, I know we will you've, restore you've law and order and we're going to make sure we so, invest so in better Act health So ACT wants a referendum on the principles of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Do you continue to rule that out? That's not our policy. 
not our policy. But you're not ruling that out. Uh, it's not, uh, uh, Jack. I know not, it's not I'm, your policy. I'm honestly not going to negotiate coalition agreements with you through the media. What I am focused on in the next four months is if you want to change the government, there's only one thing to and do. What, it's party what, vote national. And what David Seymour has said this week is that uh, ACT would support scrapping the ministry for women. Can you rule out scrapping the Ministry for Women? Uh, that is not our policy either. Uh, there, we don't see a need to do that at all. All right, a busy four months ahead. Thank you very much for your time. Look <laughs> forward to it. speaking again soon, National Leader. Christopher Luxon, if you want to contact the Q&A team, please call or my. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email, Twitter, or on Facebook. After the break... We think it's in our interest to step up our game, but um, we've always been here. We've never left. A top US official makes a Pacific pledge. Hoki Mai, welcome back to Q&A. The geopolitical divide in the Pacific is deepening, with blocks around China and the United States competing for influence. America's top diplomat for East Asia and the Pacific has just been in New Zealand, fresh from a trip to Beijing, where he met with Chinese counterparts. Daniel Crittenbrink sat down with One News Pacific correspondent Barbara Drever for this exclusive interview. In Singapore, your Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin did rebuke China um, for refusing to hold military talks. Did you sure. make any headway on that? Well, unfortunately, no, but I was equally candid as uh, the Secretary of Defence had been about our concern that it, we think it's unacceptable that we don't have uh, open channels of communication in the military-to-military -military space as well. And look, our view is we, we don't engage in dialogue as a favour to either party. We do this because this is how responsible nations ought to engage. I actually think it's unfortunate and potentially dangerous that our militaries aren't talking with one another. And we have a lot to talk about, including, as you saw, uh, some of the recent unsafe maneuvers that we've seen on the part of the People's Liberation Army. So how do you walk away from that meeting? I walk away from my meeting in Beijing uh, pleased in the sense that we had the engagement because it was constructive, productive, exceptionally candid. Um, um, but I also walk away with a continued sense of realism about where we are with this relationship. There will be continued tension. There are fundamental differences between our two countries. I think we have to recognize that uh, as the reality that we face. The United States is gathering in allies, partners, friends. It's never been so critical as the US-China divide deepens. Thank God for our partnership with New Zealand. New Zealand, uh, just like the United States of America, is part of the Pacific. And, and we really benefit from, uh, I think, the, the wisdom and the, uh, and the wise counsel that our, our friends in New Zealand uh, provide to us. No substitute, of course, uh, to engaging directly with all of our Pacific partners, but we certainly benefit from the advice and counsel uh, of our friends here uh, in New Zealand. I come here to engage in some very serious business as well. Uh, New Zealand is an incredibly capable and important partner, a strategic partner. What are the challenges of working with a country like ours that has such a strong anti-nuclear stance? I, I would like to think that we have uh, overcome uh, those challenges. Our history is what it is, uh, and there's much to celebrate there, and there are some challenges as well. Uh, I think we've overcome them, uh, and I think uh, the way I see this partnership is, is we are uh, largely like-minded in the values that we share. There's so much we can do uh, together, like two sovereign countries. We'll have some differences, of course. We'll work through those, too. <laughs> 
Last year, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Li went on a 10-country Pacific tour, signing up multiple bilateral agreements amid the regional battle for influence. The United States and ally Australia hastily followed with diplomatic visits of their own. Just weeks ago, the US and Papua New Guinea signed a cooperative defence deal which will allow American forces access to the island nation. That, along with Australia's plan to buy eight nuclear-powered submarines through AUKUS, a trilateral security pact with the US and UK, has resulted in regional anxiety about militarization of the Pacific. We're focused on promoting peace uh, and prosperity uh, across the region. We are not interested in militarizing the region. And I would say the, the vast majority of the time that we spend engaging with Pacific leaders uh, is on the priorities. And it's mostly about fisheries and climate and economic development. We do talk candidly about all issues, including security uh, as well. It's hard to have, I think, development and prosperity without security, but I think no one has an interest uh, in, in raising tensions uh, across the region. But I think we have to be honest uh, and candid about the situation as we see it as well. Yes, of, of course, no one wants them to see the militarisation, yeah. but it is happening nonetheless. We have the AUKUS deal um, um, in Australia with nuclear submarines. Mm -hmm. Pacific leaders are upset about it. Mm -hmm. We've got the PNG defence deal. Mm -hmm. You know, so do you understand how they are feeling, the leaders are well, feeling? I think what I would say is, is this, Barbara. Um, we've been present in this region for decades. So we believe that we've been the constant background presence. So I'm not sure that, that we would um, uh, somehow see that America is contributing to militarization in the region. The, the way that we're trying to uh, approach it, for example, with Papua New, Papua New Guinea and the new defense cooperation agreement that folks have been talking about, um, we've had a defense partnership with Papua New Guinea since 1975, and in many ways the DCA is really just a, a refreshing and modernization of that, and that will be done in a, in a very transparent way. It has been thus far, and you'll see even more of that uh, as it goes forward. And then, look, uh, on AUKUS, um, uh, I would say this. Uh, AUKUS is an important partnership that is going to develop uh, uh, and produce and provide a new capability to our friends in Australia related to submarines with nuclear propulsion. It has nothing to do with nuclear weapons but with propulsion and is designed specifically to contribute um, to peace and security and stability across the region. But look, Barbara, uh, we know that there have been questions uh, about AUKUS, and that's why we've engaged, I think, so intensively across uh, the Pacific and across Southeast Asia and elsewhere. My sense is that more recently, I, I think countries have an understanding of what AUKUS is and is not and, and, and what, it, what it's really about. You talked about the U.S. has been engaged in the Pacific or yes. but in, in the past, but it, would, isn't it fair to say that actually the U.S. has been missing in action for the past few decades and hasn't done as much as it should? Uh, I wouldn't phrase it that way. I, I don't think that's accurate. What I think is accurate is to say that we've decided it's very much in our interest to step up our game. Uh, and we have uh, attempted to do that. I'd like to think <clears throat> that we've done that successfully, and we're going to keep at it. We're going to do that at a pace that's comfortable with our Pacific Island friends, and we're only going to do 
what our Pacific Island friends uh, ask us to do and want us to do. And that's why we have, I think, such close and regular dialogue with them. In World War II, there were battles fought. And in, in Kiribati, for example, the Battle of Tarawa, Tarawa. and um, the, the, the U.S. Even liberated... Kid, even kids like me growing up studying yeah. that history, we know all of these names because of the sacrifices well, I grew we made up there together. Too. I'm half Kiribati, so I understand the yeah, issue. Um, and, you know, that that vision of war when when they didn't cause it is is causing anxiety yeah. in the region. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you how do you engage with Pacific countries when that vision is very much there? We recognize that sacrifice. I think we celebrate and we honor it. But we, we never want to see that kind of a situation again. And so when I see and feel and sense that strong demand signal for American engagement, I think friends in the Pacific um, want that engagement. So as I said earlier, that America continues to play that stabilizing role. It is not in anyone's interest uh, to have a conflict. And whether there's a conflict in the Pacific or anywhere else, you know, it will, it will be a disaster for all concerned. For the second time, President Biden will host Pacific leaders at the White House later in the year. The superpower has also pledged US $600 million over the decade to combat illegal fishing, boost maritime security and tackle climate change. Another $7 billion is proposed for the Marshall Islands, Micronesia and Palau, which are all in free association with America. New embassies are being set up around the region and Peace Corps is returning. The challenges of the 21st century are uh, only growing and, and security is only a small part of that. I would argue uh, climate change is probably the most urgent challenge, but so are issues related to uh, fisheries uh, and economic development as well. And Pacific leaders do say that climate change is their biggest security threat. So. The US we is agree. one of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. Mm. So what would you say to um, those concerned leaders and countries? What I would say is we hear you. We're your partner. This is why we've come back to the Paris Agreement. This is why under President Biden's leadership we've made such bold commitments to reduce our own uh, emissions, which I think are quite dramatic. And it's why we're trying to lead the, the global diplomacy to make sure all countries, whether it's, it's China or uh, other large emitters, meet their obligations and show sufficient ambition, because this truly is uh, a crisis and we have to treat it as such. And it's, it's quite interesting. I think for our Pacific friends, this is an existential crisis, uh, one that they're not contributing to because they're not the emitters, they're the ones suffering um, most from it. As the US hopes to win hearts and minds across the Pacific, island nations have made it very clear they are friends to all, enemies to none. Kiribati has extremely close political and diplomatic ties to China, and the Solomon Islands has signed a security pact with Beijing, the details of which are a secret. Every country has the sovereign right to make their own decisions. We recognize that. That's a fact of life. Uh, and uh, we want to make sure that remains the case going forward. But I think together with other friends in the Pacific, we want to make sure that when decisions are made, they're done in a transparent way, and they're done in a way that's reassuring to the rest of the region. And it doesn't cause concern or anxiety or, or undermine the peace and security that we all desire. You'll do it better. 
Well, is that um, what you're saying? Well, we'd like to think so. We, we do. I mean, look, what do we stand for? Look, we, we're Americans. Uh, we're not perfect. We're an open book. You can pick up the newspapers or watch our TV programs every day. The one thing that makes me most proud uh, to be an American, though, is because we are an open book. We do learn from our mistakes, at least we try. We talk about striving to form a more perfect union. Uh, and we also try to reflect uh, on our history, including across this region. We are more committed than ever to this fact. Our future lies in the Pacific and in the broader Asia Pacific and Indo Pacific. It's in our interest to have the most successful. Uh, partners in this region and to maintain the peace and stability that's been here for decades. That's what we're all about. That is Daniel Crittenbrink speaking to a One News political uh, Pacific correspondent Barbara Dreeter. After the break, last month was New Zealand's hottest May on record. So we asked the winner of the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize if the government has lived up to its promises on climate change. Kia ora iti, we welcome back. At the end of 2015, countries from around the world came together to negotiate the Paris Climate Accord with the explicit ambition of keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees from pre-industrial averages. But check this out, this is the quantity of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. Look at the years down the bottom there. 2015, so the year Paris was negotiated, is about halfway along that line. And as you can see in the years since, the CO2 in our atmosphere has steadily increased. For Professor James Renwick, the progress or lack thereof on emissions reductions is hugely frustrating. Professor Renwick has contributed to several IPCC climate reports and was awarded the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. He has just published a new book, Under the Weather, considering the current state of global warming and what a changing climate means for New Zealand's future. Let's consider that 1.5 degrees of warming threshold a little more. That was, of course, the threshold agreed upon under the Paris Accord. The United Nations said last month it's increasingly likely the world will, will surpass that threshold sometime within the next five years. Have you accepted that keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees isn't going to happen? I have accepted that. I mean, I would love for it to happen. I'd love there to be some miraculous change in emissions reductions. But yeah, re really, I think we can't avoid 1.5 degrees. We will go through it globally in the next few years and we'll be at that level on average within 10 years or so and then, you know, going on from there. So yeah, you've got to accept that reality, I think. And when you think about the spirit of optimism that came out of Paris, how do you feel about that reality? Not good. You know, I feel more stressed all the time. There's, there's less time left to take action, to stop climate change at a, at a manageable level. And the, the more time that passes with no reduction in emissions, you know, the less time we've got left. And I just, yeah, it's, it's really dispiriting. It was a great moment when the Paris Agreement was signed off. But we needed the action then, you know, that was seven years ago and, and things have got worse since then. So it's just crazy. It drives me insane, actually. <laughs> you, in the book, reflect upon your reaction to the latest IPCC report. And you said that as well as feeling horrified at some of the catastrophic descriptions in there, part of you had a bit of a same old, same old kind of response. Tell us about that. Well, that's right. And I've worked on three IPCC reports now and I've read the rest of them. And the message has been basically the same right from the start. We have a lot more detail now and there's a lot more urgency now. But the overall story about what's happening, where it's getting hotter, 
droughts, floods, risks to health, all the rest of it. We've known that for a long time, so a lot of the material in the latest report I'd seen before, essentially, mm. but um, it's told in an even more compelling way this time. Every time we've put one of these reports out, it is more urgent and it is more compelling and there is more detail. But it is the same message and, you know, that makes me a bit sad that we keep having to tell the same story over and over again before you get any action at all. Mm. How do you think the events of this year, the Auckland anniversary floods and Cyclone Gabrielle, have changed the conversation around climate change in New Zealand? Well, I think those extreme events have changed the conversation. They've certainly brought it into the forefront in the media and in the public mind. And, you know, it's terrible to have to have that kind of destruction and, and loss of life to bring a conversation about climate change uh, into the foreground. But, yeah, I think it has done that. The, the worry, though, is, you know, it's not flooding in Auckland today and all of our attention spans are pretty short. If the action isn't taken, if we don't capitalise on understanding what we need to do in response to these events, you know, the impetus will be lost and we'll go back to doing nothing until the next event happens and, you know, more people will get hurt. And I'd really love to think that we can get on the front foot and take the action we need to stop these kind of events getting any worse. It, my, my sense is that at a policy level, a lot of the conversation has gone from mitigation into climate adaptation. D do you agree? Um, yes, I do. Uh, and I think in response to these extreme events, all the terrible flooding up the East Coast and, and Auckland and so on, of course there has to be adaptation and there's got to be money spent on repairs and building, rebuilding infrastructure and so on. Um, and that has taken up a lot of the public conversation since these years, this year's extreme events. But we cannot afford to lose sight of mitigation, and mitigation means reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. In the book, you make some really pointed criticisms of the fossil fuel industry. And some people would say that the climate crisis has been uh, greatened because the fossil fuel industry operates in a capitalistic society. I wondered if you feel like the economic incentives are shifting towards more climate resilient options. Uh, again, I'd like to think that the options are shifting towards more resilience and, and that capitalist model, you know, neoliberal economics, um, GDP growth, all, all of those things that we've taken for granted for at least as long as I've been alive, I think we have to call under question because economic growth and just growth and the use of stuff has driven a lot of what we see, not just climate change, but, you know, the biodiversity crisis and so on. So um, we really need to rethink how we operate as a, as a society. The reason I ask is that I, I always think of climate change in terms of time frames. Yeah. And, and in the book you talk about the response to COVID-19 uh -huh. and how governments were able to act really swiftly. And I suppose the difference between these two events is that for many governments they felt it was in their short-term interests to act swiftly for COVID-19. Right. Yeah. And perhaps the short-term incentives aren't as strong when it comes to something like climate change. How, how do you overcome that? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and it's the big problem around climate change, that you don't quite see people dropping dead in front of your eyes, but the risks keep building over time. And by the time you do see people dropping dead, you know, it's a bit late. Things have got so bad that you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to really respond properly. 
So I think the, the IPCC reports, the climate science community do a good job of painting that picture of what the future could be like if we don't take action, what the dangers are, but they're always down the track a bit, or at least that's the way it's seen by policymakers, I think. Even though tens of thousands of people have died recently in heat waves, and you know, even in New Zealand we had people who died in the floods up the east coast and so on, so people are being affected, populations are being affected right now. Um, ecosystem species are nearing extinction or going extinct because of the changes in climate around the world. So it's not as though we have to wait, but because I think the, um, the IPCC reports, for instance, are always talking about, well, here's what the end of the century might look like. It's easy to think, oh, we don't have to worry about it until the 2090s, but that's, that's not the way it is. And I think it, it, I don't have an answer to that question. It is always a, a longer-term problem. Things will always get worse later if we don't take the action we need. And I suspect it will always seem kind of manageable in the short term, you know. The weather's quite nice today and it'll probably be not a bad day tomorrow and next year will probably not be too extreme. And unless you're getting these extreme events happening all the time, it's easy to shrug them off and say, yeah, yeah, I understand and we'll deal with that when we can afford to, or once we've dealt with these other more urgent issues that are on my plate right now, and it always gets put down the list of to-dos until, yeah, it, it would be too late if we leave it. Even, even leave it more than a decade now. We need to see action this decade, the 2020s. We've got to have emissions going down globally. If we don't see that, well, we're going to go through two degrees of warming. We're going to lock in the melt of the West Antarctic ice sheet, metres of sea level rise. Mass, massive disruption across the world. And once we're in that space, you know, sure we can still take the action, but it's going to be so much harder and just so much more difficult to keep going in the face of all these kind of threats. I have one question on domestic politics for you. Uh -huh. Jacinda Ardern was elected on a very strong message around responding to climate change. Over the last six years, the government has done things like declare a climate emergency, we have the Zero Carbon Act, it's established frameworks for future governments to make big reductions. But considering the actual emissions policies, the tough calls, agriculture is still not paying for its emissions. The government cut the fuel excise tax, it sent the ETS uh, price super cheap with its actions this year. If you're able to stand on the outside and look at the actual emissions reduction policies of the last six years, has the Labor government lived up to Jacinda Ardern's rhetoric? Honestly, no, I don't think so. You know, Jacinda Ardern said it was our nuclear-free moment, or this generation's nuclear-free moment, and I totally agree. The government has done a lot of great things. There are Carbon Act and, you know, agricultural emissions pricing is coming along. It'll be happening uh, in the next year or so. But given the urgency of the problem and the size of the problem, action could have been taken faster. And it, is, it has been disappointing to me how slow all these things have been developing. Maybe it's just the, the speed at which a democracy operates. That, that is a reasonable thing to say. But... Yeah, I would love to have seen faster action, more resources put into the problem, and, and bigger changes made. 
Um, and some of the changes could have been made quite quickly, overnight virtually. Um, I'm, I'm not arguing with the legislation that we have or the Climate Change Commission or the processes that have gone on around uh, consulting on pricing agricultural emissions, for instance, but boy, do I wish I could see faster action, yeah. Yeah. In the book, you mention volcanic eruptions causing sudden but temporary temperature drops. For example, Mount Pinatubu, which uh, resulted in New Zealand's coldest year in five decades in 1992. Does the scale of this crisis justify the risk of really extreme action? Something like a, a, a real Hail Mary step, like simulating volcanic clouds in order to try and bring down global temperatures? Uh, I hope not. A lot of people have talked about this idea that we could, yeah, simulate a big volcanic eruption by sending aircraft into the stratosphere and dump air pollution, basically, into the stratosphere to block out sunlight, and that would cool the climate. And we know from watching what happens with volcanoes that that would work. But it's a really, a really risky operation. Sure, you'd call the climate, but we know from studying the problem and modelling it and all the rest of it that it would change rainfall patterns around the world in probably unpredictable ways. So that would affect water availability, uh, ability to grow crops. Uh, it would have all sorts of knock-on effects that probably would be undesirable. And one of the worst things is if we started doing this, we'd pretty much be locked into keeping it going forever, unless we could reduce the emissions to zero, because if we don't, then once that stuff in the air, we stop putting it up there and it, it fades away, our temperatures would go up super fast. Something called the uh, termination shock with this kind of action. It's covered in the IPCC report. And you can imagine with a name like termination shock, it's not good news. So it's, it, it, it would be an absolute last ditch effort, I would say. I just don't want to know about it. I would rather see it not happen. But I can imagine it could because, you know, individuals, you know, the odd billionaire here and there could get a few planes and start doing something of their own accord. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I really don't want to see it happening at all. On our current trajectory, you think 1.5 degrees isn't going to happen. Given the state of emissions reductions at the moment, the state of technological advancements and the increasing use of renewable energy sources, is two degrees a more likely figure? Yeah, I think stopping at two degrees or even a bit less than two degrees is still possible. Mm. One and a half, we, we pretty much have to accept that'll happen. But that extra half a degree, there's, there's time to take action. Again, it's got to be urgent. We've got to get onto it immediately. But we don't have to be quite as drastic with the emissions reductions to stop at two degrees. We could do it in a more managed way. But uh, it, would, it would have to be done very quickly, even so. And I think, though, we could do it with, like you say, the um, improvements in renewable energy, the amount of renewable plant that's going in, and I, I see every week, you know, this country and that country, they were powered 100% by wind turbines or whatever, maybe just for a day, but we've gone a long way in that direction, and coal is being used a lot less now around the world than it was even five years ago. Balanced again against all of the new coal-fired power stations that have been built in China and so on. It, 
it, it will continue to be a race against time, but I think the extra time we have before we get to two degrees of warming gives me hope that we could stop before we get there. And I, I know that if we don't, then we're really in dangerous territory. That is Professor James Renwick. And James Renwick's new book is Under the Weather, a future forecast for New Zealand. Hey, our Q&A Q &A is back after the break. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i Thanks for your feedback. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.